You're listening to the new Acts Church Sermons channel. Subscribe here to continue receiving our sermons each week. You're listening to an Acts Church sermon. Acts Church is located in Camas, Washington. You can find out more about us at www.axcamas.org. Check out our other sermons and podcasts. You can find them on iTunes Podcasts, SoundCloud, and our website. This sermon was preached by Pastor David Robinson, who is the teaching pastor at Axe Church. We hope you enjoy the sermon, and we hope that the Lord blesses you through it. We no longer think that morality or ethics is a set of prohibitions particularly concerned with sex, writes Peter Singer, a professor of bioethics at Princeton University and a laureate professor of applied philosophy and public ethics at the University of Melbourne. He goes on. Even religious leaders talk more about global poverty and climate change and less about promiscuity and pornography. Decisions about sex may involve considerations of honesty, concern for others, prudence, and so on, but there is nothing special about sex in this respect, for the same can be said of decisions about driving a car. In fact, he says, the moral issues raised by driving a car, both from an environmental and from a safety point of view, are much more serious than those raised by safe sex. This is the view that many people hold these days. Sex is no longer an issue of morality. What we do, who we do it with, and so on are simply choices that we make based on our own desires, not based on morality or ethics. Nancy Piercy is a philosopher, a very good one. She wrote a book recently called Love Thy Body. I highly recommend it. Quite a few of the points that that I take my point of departure from here in this message come from that book in chapter 4. So if you get a chance, Love Thy Body, good book to read. But she, she goes deeper on these issues. But one of the things she says, she writes about some interviews that a woman named Naomi Wolf did with some students. And here's what one young woman said. We are so tightly scheduled. Why get to know someone first? It is a waste of time. If you hook up, you can just get your needs met and get on your way. Proverbs says something about the adulterer, Proverbs 30, 20. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. Same for an adulterous man. Culture wanted to remove morality from sexuality as long ago as Proverbs. And culture wants to remove morality from sexuality today. Culture has moved so far that now the average age that a young man starts seeing pornography is nine years old. Nine years old. So you can imagine how much a young man in our culture today has taken in by the time he's able to marry or of the age to marry. But they're just told it's just bodies performing acts separated from emotion and feeling and certainly commitment. Sex is beginning to literally mean nothing to people. And this is not just young people or unbelievers, people outside the church or whatever. Uh, According to Nancy Piercy, she says this, a 16-year-old girl who had recently lost her virginity wrote on a Christian advice site, I don't think sex has anything to do with the fact that you're married or single. I think it's a choice each person has to make by asking themselves if they're prepared for the outcome if something goes wrong. Percy also writes about a survey from the website Christian Mingle 
This is a website where Christians that are singles that are looking for a Christian marriage can get together on. 61% of self-identified Christian singles said they were willing to have casual sex without being in love. Only 23% said they would have to be in love to have sex, and only 11% said they were waiting to have sex until they're married. Christian singles. Piercy mentions what she read in an article on the internet written by uh, someone from a Christian, conservative Christian college. She says this, once, or on the internet, I once came across an article advising college students on how to have a happy hookup. That's for those of you who aren't familiar with the language of hookup, it means we get together, we have sex, but there's no emotional connection to it, and we just go on our way afterwards. How to have a happy hookup. The author recommended getting clear consent and mutual agreement to engage in sexual acts. Then the whole hookup experience will be more positive for everyone involved. This is an author from a Christian college. Your job, my job, as the body of Christ is to give way better answers than the ones we have been giving the young and the old who want to know the truth. Way better answers. We have to take back what belongs to us as believers, as Christ followers. Sex. Something that God made. Good, wonderful sex. It's a good thing. I know that some of us are a little nervous talking about that in church, and that's the problem. That's the problem. Sex was created by God as good, as good. Remember, sex existed before the fall. Sex was created by God as good. Your body was created by God as very good. We have bought into lies about who we are, about who God is, and we failed to show each other in this area of our lives, we failed to show each other what's true. We've show, failed to show each other what it means to live a Christ-centered life in the truth. And we're leaving people unprotected. And I don't, that's not a pun. We're leaving people unprotected in the war that's raging for their hearts and their minds. We're leaving them unprotected because we're not giving them good, true answers to their questions regarding sex and sexual expression. Did you know that studies show that the most satisfied people sexually, this is what studies say, okay, the most satisfied people sexually are faithfully married, conservative Christian people in middle age. Woo! That's me. Satisfaction, guarantee. Listen. <laughs> Tiffany's not in here. She's back in the kids' there. She's rolling her eyes. Hi, <laughs> now. Um, it's true. It's true. Faithfully married people are the most satisfied of any sexually active group. That's a fact. Consistently comes out. Now, why is it that Faithfully married people are the most satisfied, but everything you watch or hear says that multiple anonymous partners, the Tinder, swipe left, right, I don't know how all that works, but that, that sex should be as often and with as many and as experimental and whatever as possible when the, when the research consistently comes back and says that married people who are faithful to one another have the best sex lives. Is that what you're hearing? From your Netflix shows? It's not what I'm hearing. 
Nancy Piercy again, she quotes this. This is good. The Puritan preacher William Perkins insisted that sex is as spiritual as preaching. Yea, deeds of matrimony are pure and spiritual, and whatsoever is done within the laws of God, though it be wrought by the body, yet are they sanctified. Sex is as spiritual as preaching. Now, I'm hoping that this is going to get more young people to want to become pastors. Hey, hallelujah. The point is, is that sex is not something for us to ignore or for us to let society define. Sexual morality is a fundamental call for those who follow Christ. Not because it's all about sex. It's so much deeper than that. There's so much more connected to it than that. But if we're going to follow Christ properly, we must learn to understand where we have been wrong, what lies we've believed, and what the truth is. We have to walk through that. You can't just, we can no longer just say, Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's not helpful to those who are crying out with another message coming in their ears. Just don't do it. Just don't. Why? Just don't. That's not going to work anymore. It's not working. It hasn't worked. It's failed. Now, we've been in a series called Rooted uh, for several weeks now. We're going through 1 Thessalonians right now. And we're going to be in the same section this week that we were in last week. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and grab it out. Um, We're going to start getting into it. Um, And the reason we're in the same section this week that we were last week is because this truth that is in this passage is calling us to understand and fundamentally change the way that many of us see the world. It's calling us to understand and fundamentally change the way that many of us see the world. Let's start. We're in chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians, starting with verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. Remember, Paul, Timothy, Silas, the writing Thessalonians, they are jacked up and joyful because the Thessalonians have made it through persecution, and they were very worried that they weren't going to make it through persecution. So they're very joyful, and they want to thank God for them. And it says, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. They want to perfect what's lacking in their faith. In other words, the Thessalonians' faith wasn't perfect yet. If you go back to last week's message, it's available online and on our website, on Vimeo, on all these places. I don't know. Um, but if you go back and listen to that, we talk a lot about what it means to perfect your faith and what would happen if your faith was perfected. But that's what he's looking to do. He's, they didn't know everything yet. He's wanted to teach them more. And it says this, now may God, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. He's saying, listen, I want to perfect what's lacking in your faith. I want you to abound in love. I want you to learn how to love. Because if you'll love, then God is going to establish your heart blameless, holy, pure. There's something about loving that helps people to be more perfect. So that's what he wants to do. We jump into chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He's hammering at home and he's saying, listen, this is the commandments of Jesus that I'm about to give you. 
You need to love. I'm going to show you what that looks like. Here are the commands of Jesus, and this is what it says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification, right? Clean, holy, set apart, pure. Your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. It is God's will that for their sanctification, they're being made holy, they're being made pure, they're being set apart, that they should not be sexually immoral. This has to be written to them, right? This would not go without saying for them any more than it goes without saying for the people in our culture today, including, as we just read, lots of Christians who are very confused about this issue, okay? It was a matter of regular life, in Thessalonica and in the Roman world, that sexual immorality was rampant, prominent, just the way that people did things. The Romans did not value sexuality within a marriage. They didn't value God's design at all. Marriage was for status, children, and money. Sex was not about your husband or your wife. Sex was something that you went out and did oftentimes with slaves. They'd have slaves and some of them would work in brothels. Sometimes people would have their own personal sex slaves. They would buy slaves, particularly for sex. That was the way that they lived. This is what the Thessalonians were used to. This wasn't just like, hey, there's sex slavery. We know about that now, right, that there is sex slavery that exists out there. But for them, it wasn't hidden behind with criminals. It was the culture. It was the society. People were sold into sex slavery. This was very normal. And that was how you got your sexual uh, appetites fulfilled, not in a loving, committed marriage, none of that. Right? Separate body from mind. You go in, you, you hang out with your sex slave, and you have sex. Now, here's the thing. The only word right now that seems to still have any connotation of morality, that still holds on to morality with sex, is the word consent. Like, we still at least, at least we still say there should be consent. I don't know how long until that goes away, but the, but the one vestige of morality that's around sex is consent. But even consent, which is absolutely necessary, right, is a Christian concept, a purely Christian concept. Even consent. Back in the day when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, it was about sex slavery. It was about forcing people to have sex. You didn't have rights. You didn't have, you didn't have the ability to consent if you didn't consent, if your, if your master came and said, do this, that, the other thing with me sexually, and you said no, they just kill you. Or send you into the Colosseum to be raped by gladiators. It was, that's what sex was. But it was Christians who had a high enough view of people to believe that we were made in the image and likeness of God who pushed back against non-consensual sex, non-consensual marriage, and all those kinds of things. Beth uh, Felkner Jones writes this. True consent was a rarity in the world in which Christianity got its start. Christianity, we might say, invented consensual sex when it developed a sex ethic that assumed that God empowers individuals with freedom. That's actually something that came from Christianity. The Romans did not see sex as something special and significant. So the Thessalonians wouldn't have come with that paradigm or that mindset or that worldview. It was a free-for-all. People were not valuable. Bodies were not valuable. It was Christ and his disciples and his followers to this day who have preached a message of the value of people and the moral obligation to treat people with respect in every way and when it comes to sex. We, we think of, of these things as kind of normal part of our culture, but these were completely countercultural ideas at the time. 
the idea that sex would be anything other than what it was. Something that you did for fun to satisfy your body with other people's bodies, oftentimes without their consent, that, it, that sex would be something else, was an absolute culture shock to them, was absolutely pushing them back. And it's starting to be a culture shock again. Next verse, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Keep your body pure. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Here we see this truth about the value of your body, about the value of people being illustrated. Engaging in sexual immorality harms you and others. We're using words like you're defrauding, you're taking advantage of your brother or your sister. You're taking advantage of somebody. You know that the word used for sexual immorality in the Greek is a word porneia. We hear the word pornography. That's, that's one of the uh, roots of the word pornography. But actually the root of the word porneia or where it came from was actually from a word that means to buy. And really it specifically referenced harlotry, prostitution. The idea of buying and selling people's bodies to one another. That was the idea of porneia. So when we use words like, like uh, taking advantage of and defrauding, those words actually have real significance here because one of the things that God shows us is that sexuality outside of the context he has it for, which is sexual immorality, is like buying and selling. It's treating people as things, treating yourself and other people as things, acting as though they're something less than what they are. God did not call us, as verse 7, for God did not call us in uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. We've been called into holiness. We've been called into holiness. What does that look like? What is it saying? We've been called into purity. We've been called to be set apart. We've been called to give our bodies, to put our bodies out as living sacrifices. That means we don't get to have every lust and every desire that we have doesn't get to be fulfilled because we're Christ followers now. And we're, we get to do it his way. Remember last week we talked about three dualisms. Now I'm going to have the usher bring forth the quizzes on the three dualisms. <laughs> I'm not. Don't worry. No one would ever come back here. There were three dualisms, okay? There was the fact-value dualism. There was the secular-sacred dualism. And there was the mind-body dualism. Now I'm going to throw the first two out for now. I just want to focus on that last one. Mind-body dualism. Just for reference, mind-body dualism is this idea that a person is really their mind. And that's separated from the body, right? That the body is unimportant, that the mind is what is important. Some people would, would go so far as to say that the body is evil. Some people would look at the body like it's kind of like a robot, and the mind is the thing that sort of controls it. But the mind is who you are, the body is not. It's a dualism. It's a ripping apart of mind and body. And this evil idea is a direct lie against what God did when he created us. God made us as whole persons, body, soul, spirit. Integrated, whole persons. When we attempt to lessen the value of our bodies, we say that the image and likeness of God is not good. When God said it's very good. 
When we do things to try to suggest that what we do with the body can be separated from the mind, the will, the emotions, and all of that, we are saying that God is wrong, that God did not make something good, and that we are not a unified whole like he is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, body, soul, spirit. We're saying that we aren't, we aren't made, or, or that we aren't made in his image and likeness, or if we were, it's a bad thing. There's a philosopher named Rene Descartes. He was kicking it back in the 1600s. If you ever get to see a picture, he has really sweet hair. Um, French people in the 1600s dressed funny. Um, but he was a Christian, actually. And he wanted to separate what the scientists were dealing with from what the church dealt with. That was kind of his thing. He wanted to make sure that the church had its sphere, right? Make sure that that was good. So he wanted to separate the two things. And so he really bought into mind-body dualism. In fact, a lot of people call it Cartesian, Descartes, Cartesian dualism. He sort of made the compromise, right? This is what uh, T.Z. Levine says in his book, uh, From Socrates to Sartre, The Philosophic Quest. says this, Appeared to Descartes, mind-body dualism appeared to Descartes to effect a compromise and reconciliation between the church and scientists. Okay? It's a bad way to start to begin, but that's what they wanted to do. To each its own jurisdiction. To the scientists, matter and its mechanical loss of motion. To the theologians, mental substance, the souls of human beings. This has been called the Cartesian compromise. Let science deal with the body. Let religion deal with the mind, and we'll treat them as though they're separate things, separate substances that come together for a purpose but are not united, are not truly united. And as with all compromises, all compromises that are based on misunderstandings of Scripture and nature and who we are and who God is, anytime we compromise because of a misunderstanding of those things, it turns out very badly. And this compromise, the Cartesian compromise, has led to Horrible results. Horrible results. In fact, the entire sexual revolution is driven by mind-body dualism. The whole thing is driven, it's based on, it's anchored in mind-body dualism. If there wasn't for mind-body dualism, the sexual revolution would have nowhere to stand, nowhere to bring its ideas from. And what exactly are the sexual revolutionists revolting against? They're revolting against the truth that God made us in his image and likeness. They're revolting against the truth that the body is part of the person. They're revolting against the idea that the body is valuable. And they use mind-body dualism to give them a structure for that revolt. This has been going on since the beginning. Satan has been lying about who we are from the beginning. Did God really say God really say that you shouldn't do this thing? Oh, no, no, no. He just wants to keep you from being like him, right? We have been, we have been told lies forever. This is one of the oldest ones, that you can separate the body from the mind, that you can separate the self from the body. Melinda Selmus was a, uh, she used to identify herself as a lesbian, She's a believer. She says this, beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything. That it is insignificant, in a literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything that you like with it. You can give it away to anyone 
for any reason. It's just sort of a machine, a tool that you can use and exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. Your body is not you. It is just a shell or a robot that the real you controls. Sound like mind-body dualism? That's the mindset of people now. And this is where we are. And this is what many of us, especially some of our youngest people, have been taught from the beginning to believe, whether they recognize it as that or not. This is what personhood is. Yeah, that's right. Preach it. So what personhood is in our culture. A robot body that doesn't matter and a mind that controls that body however it wants with no moral implications. The thing that's driving everything that you see, everything that you're watching on TV, everything that you're reading, everything, all, all these ideas, the zeitgeist of our time, the thing that's driving all of that, believe it or not, behind all of that is this simple little dualism that says that your body is basically a robot, it's a sack of meat, that your real self is spiritual and out there somewhere, and that the body is not important, and therefore whatever you do with it is just about satisfying the body and therefore the self, and the body can be used for anything you want. I'm, I'm sorry, not the self, but the body. Nancy Piercy pushes back against mind-body dualism with a biblical and true view. A Christian concept of personhood depends on who I am, that I am created in the image of God and that God has called me into existence and continues to know and love me. Our dignity is intrinsic, rooted in the fact that God made us, knows us, and loves us. That is the Christian view. We are unified wholes. We are valuable body, soul, and spirit. And what we do with our bodies, listen, this is very important, especially for those of you who are, who are young and walking into this, but for everybody. What we do with our bodies, we do with ourselves. There's no separating. I did this thing. I, I had this, this sexual sin over here, this one over here, and, and somehow that's somehow separated from you. No, no, no. What you do with your body, you do with yourself because your body is part of yourself. What you do with your body, you do with yourself. You cannot separate the two. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in chapter, I'm starting in verse 13. In the second half of the verse, it says, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up, us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Listen, I could talk for a very long time today. I can always talk for a very long time. But I could talk for a very long time today about the hookup culture and what's going on with that and the evils of that. I could talk about the, 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 the fact that young men, we're finding now that young men can't even perform sexually with their wives when they get married because they've watched so much pornography that they've messed the neural paths of their brain. It literally can make your brain smaller and make the neural paths of your brain so that the only thing that you can, that you can have that will satisfy you sexually is to continue with pornography and deeper and deeper into that. That's happening right now. I could talk about that. I could talk about the fact that people are saying that in 10 years, robots will replace pornography. People will go into robot brothels and have sex with robots. You think it's funny. There's already one in Barcelona, Spain. They have a robot whorehouse. Okay? They think it's going to spark tourism. They're probably right. 
They're probably right. If your body is just a robot, doesn't it just make sense? If emotion and commitment and love are not part of sex, doesn't just, isn't it just the obvious thing to do? I could talk about how young men don't even like this new world of hookup culture and Tinder and these apps where they could just swipe left or right or whatever and find a partner and go have meaningless sex. They don't even like it. You know why? Too easy. Young men are saying it's too easy to have sex because young women have been convinced that they should be giving that up that easily. That's where we are. We could talk about that all day. The truth is that we were made in the image and likeness of God. And deep inside, people want something much more serious and significant than cheap, emotionless sex, which is what we've been pushing. You know, people today, young people, are much less likely to think that they're going to be in a monogamous relationship with one other person, much less likely to want that. They don't have hope for that. They don't have hope for serious, enduring, endearing sexual relationships. In fact, they teach themselves to become emotionless so that they don't have to be hurt as badly when they're in sexual relationships with people that are meaningless. You have to actually learn that. That's not natural. The natural thing is to desire. The natural thing is that you're made in the image and likeness of God, and inside you, deep inside you, he's put this desire and this yearning when it comes to sex to be partnered with someone for life, to create a family. To have children, all of those things, those are, part, those are deep inside us. We have to suppress them in unrighteousness to get to the kind of culture we have today and what we believe about sex. Genesis 2, 24-25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. The truth is, and this is important, if you haven't heard this, That's sad, but you need to hear this. The truth is that sex should happen between one man and one woman in a committed lifelong marriage. That's it. Like, well, what about, nope, but don't you, nope, no. Anything outside of that context is sexual immorality, which we're being told to avoid. Later, in other places, it says, flee from sexual immorality. I'm just telling you the truth about how God created sex. You can get upset with me or call me a bigot or call me short-sighted or call me closed-minded. If you want, feel free. I've heard much worse. I'm a lawyer, okay? But I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lie to you. You cannot separate your body from yourself. You cannot do it. The body was made by God to be good and to be you. It's part of who you are. When we are, when, when Jesus comes back and we're changed in the twinkling of an eye, it's not, woo, ghost person. We might be able to fly. I don't know. But it's a renewed body because you are a body. It's part of who you are. This separation that we've made is untrue, unbiblical, new agey, weird. Okay? You, ha- you will have a renewed body. Your body is important. If you understand that and you understand that it's you, you're much less likely to give yourself away in sexual immorality if you understand that it's sinning against your own body. Listen, it's good to be single. For those of you who are single out here and you're like, well, sex talk, this is, you're telling me I can't do it and whatever, so I might even listen. listen. It's good to be single. Really good. It is. Paul was single, and look at what he did. There are people all over the world who have dedicated themselves 
I'm not just talking about like mon- nuns and priests and things like that. I'm talking about just regular old people from regular church who just feel called to singleness, either for their whole life or for parts of their life. And it's good, okay? It's good to be single. It's also good to be married. But God made sex only for the marriage relationship. You don't get to have, you don't get to have your buffet. I'll be single, but I'll take the sex part of marriage. Doesn't work. Does not work, regardless of what every television show ever tells you. Okay? There is no other context for sex. There is no other context for sex that God made. The youth kids, and they're like, well, what about if we, and are we allowed to do, and what? There is no other context for sex and sexual acts but a man and a woman in a lifelong committed marriage. That's it. That is why those surveys consistently say that men and women in lifelong committed marriages are having the best sex and the most sex. He's excited. All right. (laughs) I could talk about things like oxytocin and vasopressin. And you're like, please don't. Listen, it's not that bad. Oxytocin and vasopressin are chemicals that our bodies produce. Oxytocin is originally, we originally figured it out, that it was produced during childbirth and nursing. It was a chemical that acts to bond mother and child. It's a bonding. What it does is it, it, makes, it makes this incredible bond between you emotionally, you know, this bond that happens between you and the child. And then we found out that guess what else is produced during sex? These things, vasopressin, mostly in the male, although oxytocin sometimes in the male too, and oxytocin in the female, they're both chemicals that do the same thing. When you have sex, they bond you together. They actually bond you. So you cannot, and listen to this very carefully, if you're, if you're struggling with this, let me just tell you something so that you can understand something scientifically. You cannot, quote, unquote, consent to meaningless sex. Your body will betray you. You cannot consent You cannot say, I'm okay with this thing being meaningless because your body will betray you. It will literally start pumping out chemicals that tell you, you should stay with this person forever. It's called the monogamy chemical by some people. It literally is putting that out there. So you think that you can just do this and move on, but you can't. Because God designed you a certain way. He designed you a certain way. When it says two shall become one flesh. Look, think about mothers. Or fathers, think about that, that baby, those times, that pressure baby when it completely needs you and you're just bonded to it and you just love that baby. Before they're teenagers, think about that. Right? <laughs> Kitty, love my teenagers. Love my teenagers. But that, that thing that's happening, there's a lot going on there spiritually. There's a lot going on there from the perspective of soul. And there's a lot going on there from the perspective of body. That's joining you together. You need to understand who you are to understand this. Now, the very body that you want to treat as worthless and that other person's body are both designed to have sex be something that happens in a certain kind of union. And when it doesn't, it jacks you up. You were made to either be single or be in a committed lifelong marriage. That's how you were made. And you can fight against that all you want. Okay? Celibate and single... Married and having lots of sex, those are the options. Those are the options. Actually, will somebody get Tiffany and bring her in here? I got to hear this part. I'm kidding. 
She knows. I preach all the time. Listen. Those are the two options. Anything else is sexual immorality. And Paul is telling them not to go there. We're called to enjoy life, though, okay? Our whole selves are, are called to enjoy life, body, soul, and spirit. Your body was made by God to operate in a certain way. That's why we have to abstain from sexual immorality, because you were made to, to operate a certain way, okay? We need to value what God says is valuable, we need to value what God says is valuable. We do that by following Jesus' commands about sexual immorality. Right? Look, we're not ascetics, you know. We're not whipping ourselves and mortifying the flesh and, 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 and going on, you know, 90-day fasts or doing what, you know, some of the, the Indian mystics will do, stand on one leg for 15 years or this kind of stuff. We're not, that's not who we are. We love stuff. You're like, but I thought the world was so evil, whatever. Yes, it has become broken, but it was made good. We were made very good. God loves stuff. He made it, including your body. Sex is good when done in a godly way. In fact, encouraged. You really want to get, you know, worked up. Go read Song of Solomon in the Hebrew instead of in the kind of, you know, let's just say that the interpretations that we put in English err on the side of, uh, I'd say prudery, almost, compared to what they're really saying. I'm not going to go into it right now, but one of these days, maybe, we'll go through that book. You guys are like, oh, please don't. <sighs> Good times. Listen. Some of us, starting with me, starting with me, some of us have been sexually immoral. Okay? Some of us have done things to sin against our own bodies. Some of us have engaged in porneia, the buying and selling, the treating other people like things, whether that's the use of pornography, whether that's sex outside the context of marriage, <coughs> whatever it is, whether that's lust that's happening inside your mind. We have sinned, some of us, me first, sexually. Okay? we got to deal with that. Now, we are not here, nor is it helpful for us to judge and act like we're better than anybody else in this. People are afraid to come to church and be honest about the, the things that they've messed up about sexually because they figure that all of us will be so harsh to them and will treat them like damaged goods and won't love them. Listen, I'm damaged goods. That's what the cross was about. <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, I'm damaged goods. That's why I'm here. That's why I get up here every week and I yell and I do it for too long sometimes and all this kind of I do it because I'm damaged goods and he saved me because I was able to put that at the cross and be forgiven. And so can you. So can you. We move forward by loving and caring for people so that they can seek forgiveness and God promises they will find it. 1 John 1.9, wonderful verse. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we didn't have that, hang it up. I couldn't live under the things that I've done if I didn't have this. That God will look at Christ instead of me. He's not looking at me for holiness, sanctification, justification. He's looking at Jesus. Jesus has paid the price for me. That's why we're here, week in and week out, loving, serving, and, and preaching the good news of redemption, reconciliation, and transformation in Jesus Christ. That's why it's so powerful that he died for us. 
That's why it's so powerful and there's so much hope in the fact that he rose again. Bodily. I'm here on Sunday worshiping. I'm here on Sunday fellowshipping, teaching, whatever I do, because of all the things that Jesus has done for me. I know how to sleep in. I don't want to. I want to be with you. I want to talk about Jesus because of what he's done for me. He has put my sin as far as east is from west. He remembers it no more. He will do the same with yours. I'm not here to tell you about sexual morality so that you'll sit here and suffer in shame. And the Holy Spirit through Paul in writing the book of 1 Thessalonians, this letter to this Thessalonian church, was not telling the Thessalonian Christians to sit there and suffer in shame. That was not what it was about. He's bringing a message of redemption, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of repentance, of transformation. He was there to make all things new. That's what it was about. God is here to heal you and provide you a chance to present your body as a living sacrifice, to give up sexual immorality, not to walk in it anymore, to no longer be conformed to the world, to its beliefs about valueless bodies and valuable minds, and sex being something that doesn't matter, and do what you want when you want, and who are you to tell me? All that nonsense is out. Don't be conformed to that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have some things you need to get right with God today. Don't wait until you think you've got it all figured out to come to God. That's not going to happen. We don't figure it out. We just, we just end up getting worse. Bring it to God now, today. Fall in the arms of Jesus today. He is waiting for you. The body of Christ here is here to stand beside you. Don't go deal with this on your own somewhere. Try to make yourself good for God. He knows you're not good. He's here to forgive you. We're here to hold you, to pray with you, to love you, to encourage you. We, we are not going to blush at your past. Okay? You might blush at mine. I'm not going to blush at yours. I know how powerful my God is. I know the power he has to forgive sin. And I love you regardless of what you've done. And you're like, no, you don't know what I've done. No, listen. I do. I know the evil in my own heart, so I know what's in yours. C.S. Lewis talks about how does he know that the, that the person down the street has a letter in their mailbox when the mailman walks by? How does he know that what's in their mailbox is letters? And he says, well, because what's in my box is letters. And I can probably assume that if the, the mailman's always putting letters in my box, that's probably what he's putting in their box. Look, I know what's in your heart because I know what's in my heart. I know where you feel because I know where I feel. They may be different in certain ways, but I know the wickedness of being a rebel against God, of believing that I can do things the way that I want to do them. Today's the day for you. Jesus loves you. It does not matter what you've done. What matters is who he can make you. He can make you, you. The person that's done these things, the you that's done these things is the broken you. It's a spiritually dead you. He wants to make you new, a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He wants to begin a good work in you that he'll be faithful to complete. But you've got to come to him. You got to let some things go. Well, thanks for listening to that Axe Church sermon. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you did, we'd love it if you would comment or 
give us a review or give the track a like. Uh, it really means a lot to us to hear back from people who have um, heard these sermons and have been impacted by it. So share your story with us, share what is happening in your life um, that this is speaking into. And remember, you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast or through SoundCloud so that you can get all of our releases as soon as they come out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.